You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 101. Today, we're asking the question, when should incidents cause us to question risk assessments? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, following on from our touch on nuclear power in episode 100 when we reviewed Perot's book on normal accident theory, you had a few reflections on Perot's anti-nuclear sentiment in that paper. So we decided to follow it up with this uh, episode and paper today. And I guess the experts who do risk assessments into nuclear technology have the view that it's safe. And I guess this tends to be the view that, I guess, the broader society adopts um, as sort of belief, faith, trust in these experts and their assessments. So I guess, I guess what we're going to explore today is what happens when they get it wrong and the incident occurs. Or if an incident does occur, does that mean they've got it wrong? And a while ago, I mentioned on one or two of these episodes, Drew, that you seem to have this hit list of about 10 or so papers that you definitely threw across to me when I started my PhD. And I guess designed to make, I guess, a new student think a bit more critically about the world. Uh, this was one of those papers. So I guess, what is it about this paper that you like? And what is it about this paper that would make it useful for anyone in safety to to be thinking about? Uh, so, so, David, I guess I should start off by saying that I don't actually have a hit list of the same papers I send to every student. And it, it's a question I often like get, you know, can you give me a bunch of papers that'll make me like think interesting thoughts about safety? And I actually do curate this student for student for what I think each student will respond to and where they need to sort of be thinking more deeply about things. But this particular paper... I really like because there's this thing that happens that I, I know you've experienced this too. When you're just starting off doing a literature review and you're really interested in a topic and you're trying to find papers that answer that topic, then all of a sudden you find this other person who has thought the same things you've thought. And it's like they've gone down this path slightly ahead of you. And you have immediately this really positive reaction. Ah, oh, this is someone who's really guiding me. And then you have this moment of like real doubt. Hold on, is my research even worthwhile because someone's already done it? And then you know, gradually you sort of come to terms with it and realize, no, just that your knowledge has been expanded by this person who's gone before and that's going to carry you even further yourself down the path. So I was doing a literature review about criticisms of quantitative risk assessments because I was trying to sort of formulate my own uh, critical analysis. And I was looking for people who had like previously done analysis to find out like what both the main arguments were. But also I wanted to better understand what the defenses were of quantitative risk assessments, because most of the literature is critical. So why do people do it at all? And then I ran into this paper, which is simultaneously a critique of quantitative risk assessment but it's also an explanation of how people are able to keep believing that quantitative risk assessment is a good idea in the face of all the criticism. And this paper is like geared at the ultimate criticism of risk assessment, which is when the risk assessment turns out to be horrifically wrong. How do you then recover and keep believing that risk assessment is a good idea? 
And I actually interviewed John for my old podcast, Disastercast, about this paper. And he was sort of swimming in this this environment where Fukushima had happened, but he had all of these friends who were engineers who do risk assessment for a living. And he was just really interested in, like, how do they come to terms with this is what they do is explain to people why nuclear accidents won't happen. A nuclear accident happens. What do they then say next? And it's almost like the way when people predict the opposite, when people, when cults predict the end of the world and they predict the end of the world on a particular date and the date comes about and the world doesn't end, how do they recover? And, you know, spoiler alert, they don't recover by immediately saying, oh, my theory was bunk. The world's not going to end. Let's abandon the cult and all go in our separate directions. And likewise, people who do safety don't see a major accident and say, oh, gosh, we're not very good at this, are we? Let's pick a different profession. So I think that's like a really interesting question is how do you recover your beliefs in the face of such a big challenge to those beliefs? Yeah, great summary, Drew. And so maybe let's introduce the article. So you mentioned the author there briefly by first name. So the author is John Downer. The title of this paper is Disowning Fukushima, Managing the Credibility of Nuclear Reliability Assessment in the Wake of Disaster. It was published in 2013, so a couple of years after, uh, two years after the Fukushima uh, incident. And it was published in a journal titled Regulation and Governance. And I think, Drew, this is the first time we've drawn from this journal. I've, I've, I'd never heard of it before. Have you ever heard of this this journal? This is the only article I think I have ever actually cited coming out of that journal. So I don't want to sort of say anything positive or negative. It's just a journal I don't know much about. Yeah, I think I'm just going to leave it there because that is a space where often it is. We don't actually know the credibility of the journal. We can look online and see what other people say. But like, ultimately, no, most of the stuff they publish doesn't seem to be particularly of interest to me. So I don't know either pro or against the quality. I've got to judge each individual article on its merits. Yeah, and I think we know we know how many journals are out there, and and I guess we we try to stick to the peer reviewed journals in the podcast, and I guess you can form your opinions of this paper. I mean, there's not a lot of well, there is no real detailed data collection and analysis in this paper, so we can look at the strength of the arguments and the and the sort of the theory being being proposed. So, Drew, just to frame up the paper, so the paper is really about uh, and and to take some points out of the abstract, you know, the paper reflects on the credibility of nuclear risk assessments, uh, particularly after Fukushima. The argument goes that our policy making around nuclear and even the broader community acceptance of nuclear en- energy has long been premised on this understanding that we've got these experts, and these experts, mostly engineers, can objectively and accurately calculate the probability of having these catastrophic events, and. I guess the Fukushima disaster kind of lends itself, or any disaster, I I guess, that goes in the face of these assessments, lends itself to the substantial body of social science research, which we speak a bit about on the podcast, that sort of suggests that these calculations are fundamentally unworkable for a whole bunch of reasons we'll talk about today. Nevertheless, though, the credibility of these assessments seem to continually survive the disasters in their industries, and not just in nuclear, but in in other high-risk industries as well. So we're going to look at kind of like what, why our faith, trust, belief in these risk assessments can endure beyond beyond the disaster. And there's a quote after the abstract, Drew, and I quite like that idea of dropping a quote after the abstract. We've used it ourselves a few times. That's from Terry Pratchett, who says, after eight years involved with the nuclear industry have taught me that when nothing can possibly go wrong and every avenue has been covered, then it's time to buy a house on the next continent. So... 
when everything is when everything is 100% safe then it's probably a good indicator that it's not safe at all yeah and david before we sort of get too much into the meat of the article i, I think it's worth reflecting a little bit on how different industries have these different narratives associated with them so when we think about like airline travel the like constant argument is our oh, people are genuinely assumed to be a little bit afraid of flying but we reassure them by just saying like flying is totally safe you know, people do comparisons, like the chance of dying in an aircraft is, you know, less than the chance of dying on the way to fly in that aircraft. You're going to have a car accident on the way to the airport, not, in, not an accident in the plane. And then we have rail, which is just sort of like assumed to be like generally safe. And then we've got the narrative that like cars are unsafe, but they're commonplace and we use them anyway. The narrative around nuclear is really interesting because it's more... No one thinks that nuclear power is safe. It's always portrayed, even by the experts, as this inherently dangerous thing. But the argument is it's this dangerous thing, but don't worry about it because the experts are doing their best to look after it. It's a dangerous thing that's been made safe by all of the safety precautions. And that's kind of a fragile belief because you've got to trust that those safety precautions are adequate. And then every time we have a hint that they're not, we've got this boiling possibility underneath. And I always find that interesting because my like personal view is that the reality is that nuclear power is not fundamentally dangerous. You know, it's dangerous in the way that coal-fired power or chemical plants are dangerous in that, yeah, there are bad things that can happen, but those bad things, and those bad things are bad, but they're not like especially bad for nuclear. You know, the half-life of radiation might be in the hundreds of thousands of years, but you know, heavy metals don't have a half-life. They're there permanently. And we have heavy metals in all sorts of different processing. So once we sort of like set it up as the demon that's under control, then the control immediately becomes this really suspect thing. And it's a little bit surprising that we don't scrutinise the control every time it fails. Yeah, and I guess, Drew, the paper sort of draws out some of those examples of aviation and even infrastructure like bridges and tunnels and sort of goes that people understand that, you know, planes occasionally crash and they don't expect the individual plane that they're flying on to crash, but, you know, understand that planes crash. But when it comes to nuclear power, there's almost this total absolute belief that people just don't expect disasters to happen. And I guess as we'll talk about in this paper, even after the last disaster does happen, I guess we bounce back into that world that, well, that's, well, we're never going to have another one again. And I guess that's what we'll talk about in this paper today. So, we would never believe that for aviation, no matter what the airlines told us. If they said no plane is ever, ever going to crash again, we wouldn't believe that. But we seem to, when when the nuclear industry comes out and says we're never going to have a nuclear incident again, we seem to go, oh, okay, well, that's good. So, Drew, I guess one of the things that was called out early on in this paper, because what we're going to do is we'll talk a little bit about you know how we think about some of the general things about probabilistic risk assessment. And then we're going to talk about these four narratives that, I guess, experts and others tell themselves as to why the risk assessments uh, we should still we should still trust in them after incidents occur but they went on to talk about where I just wanted to draw out something about the nuclear industry because maybe the nuclear industry has convinced itself that it is very very safe and so much activity's gone on to the prevention side of the risk management exercise that this article just calls out just some of the limitations in things like emergency response planning uh, particularly in the wake of Fukushima and some really specific scenarios that had never been considered, some response actions that 
uh, had never been considered, even to the point of evacuations and, and availability of medication and these things. And I guess, Drew, you've done a bit of work with Ben Hutchinson on fantasy plans. And I guess this idea that if we think something's really safe, then we're probably not going to invest significantly or usefully in what we actually need to do if we need if something does happen. Yeah, David, I think that in the case of nuclear power, we're in this awkward situation where in order to prepare emergency plans, we have to contradict ourselves. And those contradictions are difficult uh, from a public relations point of view, but they're also just difficult from a psychological point of view. So like, you know, logically, what you really want around a nuclear power plant is you want radiation monitoring. But why on earth would you need radiation monitoring around a nuclear power plant that you have said is never going to have radiation release? Surely this putting up of like dosimeters in the nearest towns, that's telling people that there's a possibility of radiation when at the same time you try to tell them, no, it's impossible, there'll never be radiation. You know, how do you have plans for a controlled release of radioactive gas which is something that people always end up needing to do in nuclear crisis situations. When you're like promising people, we're never going to release gas. You know, how do you have defense in depth and talk about like, how are we going to handle it if we've ever got radiation in the outbuildings? <laughs> when the whole point of the design is that you never have radiation in the outbuildings. You've got these contradictions between the way it's supposed to work and the way it might end up being and admitting that it might end up being in these terrible states. And it's like, for example, one of the things at Fukushima was they just had no plans for, like, what happens if we have to flush seawater through this thing? Because admitting that you might have to, like, flush out the plant with seawater is admitting that you could be in a situation where all of your other stuff doesn't work and you promised yourself that all the other stuff's going to work. Yeah, and no, I drew it's this um, systemic failing on the, on the response side where systemic from a sense of if you, the assumptions about the credible scenarios that you carry into your normal risk assessment for normal operations becomes those same assumptions and scenarios that you bring into your emergency situation. So like you say, which is, you know, it's never considered that we don't have access to, you know, the 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 cooling the cooling systems. It's even they were talking about the on-site dosimeters, you know, they were designed for normal operations with background radiation as opposed to like anything like any kind of doses that would be seen during a during an incident. And you know, operators had to borrow flashlights from nearby houses because they didn't have, you know, sources of emergency lighting and things like that. So just this idea, and, and we'll get back to practical examples at the end, but, you know, carrying the limitations of your risk assessments into limitations of your emergency plans might just give yourself a bit of a double whammy. Yeah, it, it's almost like you need two separate groups of people. One group that's told, make it never happen. And the other group that's told, start with the assumption that it happens. Yeah, fix it. <laughs> and, and having that like same group be the same set of people just requires total cognitive dissonance. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So then let's talk briefly about, and I, and I guess probabilistic risk assessment, Drew, I guess we, you could talk far more than briefly on that. But I guess the, this idea of probabilistic risk assessment is, you know, we've got this, we've got industries have, the, have created and adopted a whole series of calculative tools that gives operators, designers, regulators a means of, you know, objectively, in inverted commas, establishing that nuclear accidents were sort of too improbable to merit serious discussions. Now, Drew, I guess a lot of this was early, earlier, I guess, in the 60s, and that was based on a set of studies called the WASH studies. Do you want to talk just a little bit about the background into the WASH studies in the nuclear industry? Sure. So one thing that I think has been fairly lost to history is that most of these 
very early quantitative risk assessments. And the language that you use there, David, is really telling. They were not told, give us a realistic understanding of the likelihood of a nuclear accident. That was never the question. The assignment was demonstrate that the risk associated with this accident is sufficiently low. And so a lot of these methods are not designed with the spirit of scientific inquiry. They're methods designed with a ability to provide a rationalization for why we should believe a particular number that has in fact been determined in advance. We've already been told what is acceptable. You're now tasked with producing an analysis that matches acceptable. But with the, unlike with some of the things that came before WASH to do with nuclear weapons, which were much, much more explicitly just following straight down that path. You've been told, you've told us that it's less than one in a million. Okay, prove that it's less than one in a million. Fantastic, here's our report that says it's less than one in a million. With WASH, they did actually put these early reports under peer review. And so the initial calculations showed that nuclear power was acceptable. They were also incredibly convoluted, incredibly unreadable, incredibly unrealistic. Um, I used to actually give my poor students an assignment to read the original WASH 1400 report, and it's just impossible. <laughs> Even if you are an engineer and understand maths, this is not an exercise in transparency. It's basically, we were expecting you just to read the abstract and believe us. We were never intending that anyone else would actually check our calculations. If we did, we might have actually explained what those calculations were. And so the original risk assessment was peer-reviewed and was very heavily criticised. And one of the things that it was criticised for, apart from the like total lack of transparency about how it was done, was the lack of any sort of consideration of uncertainty. So people were plucking numbers out of the air, basing their calculations on those numbers, and they're never considering, okay, what if these numbers happen to be wrong? But oddly, the next step was not to reject the analysis. The next step was just, oh, do it again, but this time do it again with uncertainty calculations. <laughs> And so we basically went from this science of calculating risk to this subscience of calculating uncertainty. And so risk assessments became a calculation of risk plus a calculation of uncertainty, neither of those being particularly scientific. And you, we could actually just make it uh, to um, continue the Terry Pratchett since it's already appeared in the episode. It's turtles all the way down. That, you know, if we're going to do the calculations of uncertainty, then we're going to need to do a calculation of the uncertainty with the uncertainty because we use the same methods we used to calculate the risk. Yeah, so during this paper talk about, you know, one of the prominent manufacturers reporting to a UK regulator before Fukushima that the risk of a, a core damage incident to be in the order of one incident per reactor for every 1.6 million, e million years and, and the probability of a core meltdown is infinitesimal, even to the point of not we're not even prepared to put a number on the probability of a meltdown because we've got this one in every 1.6 million years just for a core kind of incident. And then even reactors of the age of Fukushima were sort of considered to be, you know, by those assessments, probabilistic risk assessments, to be sort of one in a hundred thousand years type of type of incident, um, but still not, I guess, resulting in a meltdown. So, Drew, David, can I just pull you there for a moment? Because these figures they they just sound like ridiculously low, but I think we need to just point out just how ridiculously low they are. These French figures about the reactor do not include in them any consideration of where that reactor happens to be. The like assumption is that that core damage can only come from the reactor itself, right? 
Japanese history has not been well recorded for the necessary 100,000 years. But just think back, Japan, the last 100 years. And just think of those things that have got nothing to do with a nuclear reactor that are capable of flattening a city that have happened to Japan in the last 100 or 150 years. We have had multiple city-destroying earthquakes. We have had multiple city-destroying floods or tornadoes. We've had a war that did a pretty good job of flattening multiple Japanese cities in that time. The likelihood of a core damage incident being 1.6 million years, given that there have been multiple, multiple, multiple types of events that are capable of flattening the entire city the reactor's in over the time span of just 100 years, just shows how like ridiculously those figures don't take into account all of the possible causes of the accident happening. Yeah, Andrew, so I guess this um, the next two sections before we get into sort of the, the detail talks about objectivity versus, I guess, a sociological perspective. So there's this, this, this probabilistic risk assessment engineering perspective that's all about transparency, objectivity around decision making, and that we actually can calculate we can calculate these numbers and and we can understand what what might happen and and how often it it might happen. And then you've got the sociological perspective where John Downer kind of ties back into normal accident theory and and Charles Perrault's work, which we reviewed last week, and said, you know, look, accidents are caused by very improbable confluences of events where no risk calculation could ever anticipate. And so, if you've got if if systems have got billions of potential billion to one accidents then it's only expected that we're going to see accidents from time to time. Because if you've got that many, that many possibilities, even at low probabilities, you're, you're going to see incidents. David, I'm sure not all, all of our listeners are familiar with what these risk assessments actually look like. So there's something I should throw in here that D- Downer, Downer is aware of this. He's not hiding it. it. He's just sort of assuming that you know the answer in the background. The way these risk assessments are conducted is typically with a thing called fault tree analysis. There are a couple of alternate methods like Markov analysis, but in nuclear power, a lot of these assessments are are presented as fault trees. And the idea of the fault tree is that it does in fact calculate the confluence of events. So it takes the probability of each individual event, and then it creates these complicated logic structures that show what if this event happens at the same time as this event or this one, but not this one, but then this one as well. It actually calculates all of those probabilities and combines them together. So it's not that those confluences are probable. Each individual combination of them is in fact quite improbable, and the possible combinations have been considered and taken into account. But what's typically missing from those analysis is it assumes that we know the probability of each individual event and that Therefore, we can just treat them as individual things and combine them. And it never takes into account all of the things that make these apparently improbable combinations, things that are likely to happen all at once. You know, the chance of diode number 337 failing at the same time as transistor number four failing may be like one in 100,000 multiplied by one in 100,000. Your chance of them both happening at the same time is going to be one in 10 million. But... If the entire building's underwater, then they're both guaranteed to fail at the same time. And if the maintenance regime is failing, then they're both going to be under-maintained, both likely to fail. And the risk assessments don't properly take into account these reasons why apparently independent events might actually be quite likely to happen at the same time. So, Drew, let's let's talk about then how we rationalise 
these disasters or, or incidents in the context of these risk assessments. So we've got these we've got these probabilistic risk assessments in as, in as much detail as you've just described there. And we have this number, and that number is, I guess, acceptable to the operators, the regulators, and can you know throw these out to the communities. You know, one in one point six million year chance of of a core incident, and we're not even going to calculate the chance of a meltdown because it won't it won't happen. So I guess what John Downer goes on to propose and and talk through is that there's sort of four reasons that we might, four narratives, four overlapping narratives. So the way that we can talk about the incident and the risk assessments, we can talk about them in a certain way so that we can continue to have faith and trust in the system and, and in these assessments. I might just introduce these four, Drew, and then we'll go through each one if that's if that's okay. So the first one is that the risk assessments themselves did not actually fail. And he calls this an interpretive defence. So how we interpret what the risk assessment was going to do and how we interpret the incident can show that, yes, the incident occurs, occurred, but the assessment itself didn't fail. The second one was that the failure of one assessment is not relevant to the credibility of other risk assessments. So this is like the relevance defence. So, okay, we might have missed something at Fukushima, but we haven't missed anything anywhere else. The third one is that the assessments were sound, but people didn't behave in the way that they were supposed to behave or they didn't obey the rules. And this is what Downer calls the compliance defence. So you can't really hold the engineers and the risk assessors responsible when people inside the plant or the operations company acts or does things in a certain way that they weren't supposed to do. And the fourth there is that the 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 fourth is probably the most, um, I guess, least defensive one, which is that, okay, the assessments were flawed, but now we know how those assessments are flawed and we fixed it. And this is what Downer calls the redemption defense. Okay, there might have been a problem with our assessments. We've had this incident. We've learned from it. We've gone and fixed the other assessments. It's not going to happen again. So, Drew, do we want to talk about these four one by one and I guess the argument people make and then the counter argument that Downer makes? Yeah, let's, let's try to give a fair version of what each of these defences actually sounds like before we point out the criticisms of them. So I, I want to sort of like make sure that we do in fact acknowledge why these defences do sound reasonable. So shall I have a go at the interpretive defence to start with? Yeah, do that. Okay, so, so your interpretive defence is ultimately, yes, we had a risk assessment. Yes, the accident happened. But that doesn't mean that the risk assessment was bad. Now, there, there's a few different versions of this. Uh, so one of them is there is a genuine argument that Fukushima was not actually an accident, right? It got lots of media attention. It got lots of press. It got lots of scaremongering. But ultimately, the different layers of defences ultimately worked. So what we saw was the first couple of layers of defences failing. But then, like defences are supposed to do, the emergency plans were put into practice. The emergency plans did, in fact, work. So that's Fukushima basically wasn't a real accident. So the risk assessments, which said, you know, you're never going to have that accident. You, you're, what you were scared of was a meltdown. So why are you picking us up for successfully preventing a meltdown? There, there's a slightly different version of this, which says, yeah, OK, Fukushima did happen, but we said the chance was one in a million. It's happened once. You, you can't say, oh, we were wrong about it happening one in a million when it only happened once. And then there's a third version, which is the one that most commonly gets used for Fukushima, which is that in order to do a risk assessment, you've got to make certain assumptions. And we've got to say, OK, a reactor is 
never going to be perfect. We've got to design it to meet certain conditions. We design it to meet the risk of an airplane crashing into it, but it's unrealistic to expect us to be successful protecting it from a nuclear bomb exploding next door. And so we call this the design basis. We design nuclear power plants to withstand reasonable conditions. Those conditions have limits. We designed Fukushima to survive certain conditions that were suitable for a nuclear power plant in Japan. We did our risk assessment on that basis, and an event which rocked the world, which rocked the region, happened. That was outside the design basis for Fukushima. The fact that Fukushima survived that event is miraculous. It went above and beyond its risk assessment. The risk assessment wasn't wrong. You don't blame Fukushima for being partially damaged by an event which flattened a region. So that, that's sort of the interpretive defense. So we don't need to worry about the risk assessment because the risk assessment was right. It gave us an accurate perception of the risk within what it was expected to do. So Drew, I guess that last one's a little bit like force majeure, which is that you know if, if, if the risk assessment was, was based on, say, the plant being 10 meters underwater, because it was 20 meters underwater, the risk assessment was never designed to provide probability of that particular scenario. Um, and the assessors would say, well, we could have if we had have wanted to include that particular scenario. And then your other point, which is, yes, it's only happened once. So if it happens twice, our risk assessment's wrong, but it's only happened once. And the first one, well, it wasn't actually a meltdown. You know, yes, there were some fatalities uh, and, you know, the numbers of those fatalities varies, but it wasn't a it wasn't a meltdown. So that's the interpretive defense, Drew. Do we want to sort of so so, you know, quite rational narratives that 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 regulators, operators, designers can even the community can can hold and and listen to. Do we want to talk about, I guess, re-examining that from maybe how Downer would see the more irrationality of that particular narrative? Yeah. So 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 this one, Downer's answer, is really simple and easy and I have a hundred percent sympathy for. You can't take a risk assessment and say, oh, the risk assessment was fine, we just got the scope wrong. Because the scope is supposed to be part of the risk assessment. Right? Part of the risk assessment is supposed to be considering what are the reasonable external events that the risk assessment is supposed to take into account. You, this defence might exculpate individuals. Like if you are the like third tier engineer asked to write the fault tree, you are given a set of assumptions and told write a fault tree in accordance with these assumptions. Okay, that's fine. That gets you off the hook. But it doesn't get the person who gave you those assumptions off the hook for making the wrong assumptions. And those assumptions are part of the risk assessment process. And that absolutely applies once we take this up to the level of regulating an industry. If the regulator is letting you make bad assumptions in order to make your risk assessments, then we cannot say that the risk assessment based regulation regime is working at all. And there's one specific thing that happened with Fukushima that can easily be called out for this. And this is just the assumption of how high a tide coming in as a result of the tsunami, the reactor was supposed to be able to withstand. And now this directly involved things like constructing the seawall. If you're told, assume that the highest tide that can come in is 10 meters, and you build a seawall that can manage that 10 meters, it's hard to criticize you. But the person who told you build it so that it can withstand 10 meters ought to have done reasonable checks about what is a reasonable tide that might come in. Now you can say, well, okay, this was a spectacular 20 meters. That was far more than they expected. But their expectation was dumb. 
you look back at the history of floods in the Fukushima area and you cannot say that more than 10 metres was something that they should not have anticipated. You, 20 metres actually, yeah, probably they shouldn't. You, it's unrealistic to have anticipated 20 metres. But this would have failed at 19. It would have failed at 18. It would have failed at 17. It would have failed at 10.5. And all of those are, you know, 10.5 particularly is something that happens every 20 years or so. It is not, you know, it was an unreasonable thing. And to just exclude that from the risk assessment is to exclude one of the key failings of risk assessments, is that risk assessments are really bad at anticipating what are the reasonable parameters for external events that might happen. Yeah, Drew. So Downer sort of says that the real art of risk assessment or risk calculation isn't just about applying a formula correctly, but it's about framing that formula correctly. So like you said, what are all the different operating conditions that this plant might encounter during its lifetime? And so if you turn around and say that, well, this event was beyond the design basis, this event was outside our parameters, it's basically essentially saying that an integral element of a risk assessment process, which is actually framing all of the credible and possible scenarios correctly, was wrong. So the calculations may have all been right, but the framing of the whole assessment process was was not right. So, you know, Dan says you can't, I guess in terms of this interpretive defence, he goes, it may not be reasonable for anyone involved in this industry to go, well, um, the risk assessment didn't fail because the incident happened. I mean, maybe you can do that if a satellite falls out of the sky or something happens. But, you know, more and more, I guess, as, as the world gets more and more complex, then our parameters for these assessments need to become equally as complex. And if, if you are still a fan of the design basis argument, then I'd urge you to consider what the residents of Fukushima were told. They were not told, we're building a set of nuclear power plants. These nuclear power plants will be safe so long as we don't have a particularly high tide. They weren't told these things will be safe so long as earthquakes are no worse than they've been in the last decade or so. And, you know, if we get a tsunami, if we get a bad earthquake, all bets are off. You're at risk. They were told this is safe. This has been designed appropriately. This has been had a risk assessment done. The risk assessment says it is safe. So, you know, if you're going to claim nuclear power plants are safe within their design basis, then you should be advertising those design bases to the population, along with credible evidence of how often that design basis might be broken. And, you know, if the risk is, oh, it's one in a million within the design basis, but the chance of the design basis is being wrong, oh, that's going to happen every decade or so then it's that second number that you should be sharing with the population. Yeah, that's a scary realisation. So, Drew, we've got three more narratives. So the second one is is what Downer calls the relevance defence. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Okay, so the relevant defence is, I think, my favourite, because this is basically saying, and this is what we do with many accidents, is we call out the people who suffered the accident as a bad actor. So risk assessment generally is good, but Fukushima did it wrong. Now, that one, I think, is fascinating in the case of Fukushima because you've only got to look at exactly what was said after Three Mile Island and after Chernobyl. After Three Mile Island, the Soviets said this could never happen in Soviet Russia because it's the type of accident that only happens under American individualised, commercialised regimes. And then we have Chernobyl happens and the Americans say, oh, this is the thing that can only happen under Soviet regimes with lack of individual accountability. And what everyone agreed after both of them is that the ideal sort of culture where this would not happen is a culture that combined individual accountability with social responsibility. 
like i.e. Japan, until the moment the accident happens in Japan and everyone says, oh, those awful Japanese with their subservience to authority culture. It's, I think that sort of history makes obvious just how this relevance argument only works if you only have exactly one example of something happening. The moment things to happen start to happen in more than one place and time, then you've got to accept that there are things that are more than just one place and time, exceptional things causing it. And in particular, in order to properly make the relevance defence, you've got to be able to predict in advance which risk assessments are bad, not just afterwards which risk assessments were bad. Because if you can't tell till afterwards, then that's useless as an explanation for why your risk assessments don't have those exact same problems. I'm um, sorry, that's actually me talking. Should we shift to what um, Downer says about the relevance defence? No, uh, and it's very close. It, and and well, it's um, a good interpretation of it. He he talks in this relevance that there's there's a. I, I guess we know in in safety this idea of you know di- differencing by distancing, which if we can find a way to think that the incident. You know, aspects of the incident aren't the same of of aspects of another operation, then we can we can discount the plausibility of that scenario. So in this case, he talks about you know if we can go well, this is an old 1960s Mark One style plant, then this problem doesn't exist with you know more recent plants and assessments. Or we can turn around and say, well, the culture, like you said, the, the national culture and the operators is are different. Or even in this case, very much the regulatory regime was called out specifically. To say that you know the the assessment and regulatory environment in Japan wouldn't happen in Europe or or the US, and so there's this way of going. It, I, I guess this relevance defence is really what we might know broadly in safety, Drew, as I interpret it, as this differencing by distancing situation. And we see this in you know aviation incidents as well. So particularly after like the Boeing incidents uh, with their MCAS system, you know you know there was a lot of discussion about the African and the Asian pilots involved in the uh, those two fatal aircraft incidents and sort of saying that, well, this incident wouldn't happen with Western pilots. So it was sort of how Europe and the US and even Australia were able to turn around and say, well, no, 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 we're not worried about these planes because we have Western pilots in them and they you know, would behave differently to, to some of those other cultures. So I guess that's this relevance thing, Drew, rather than seeking ways for how we might be similar, we sort of seek out ways to, you know, find a difference and, you know, justify an existing position. David, I'm glad you pulled out the MCAS example, because I also want to point out exactly what happened once we eventually realised, no, it's not just the African and Asian pilots, it's actually the software, is everyone immediately turned on Boeing and their quantitative risk assessments. And it was all Look at how badly Boeing did these quantitative risk assessments, <laughs> singling out Boeing and distancing themselves from Boeing, not, again, like not recognizing the fundamental limitations of the quantitative risk assessment process. Instead, it was just, oh, Boeing did it wrong. They should have done it better. So, you know, even once we stopped distancing from the pilots, we still distance from the particular example of the risk assessments. And the big question that needs to be answered if you want to mark th- this defense is how do you know that your risk assessments don't have the same problems, right? If we didn't realise the problems with Fukushima risk assessments until Fukushima happened, if we didn't realise the problem with Boeing's risk assessments until the MCAS accidents happened, then we're not going to realise the problems with your risk assessments either until an accident happens. And, you know, if you want to argue against that, publish the damn risk assessments, put them online, (laughs) 
I'll find the faults in them because they're the same faults that are in every risk assessment, right? The mistakes that people make in these things are really quite consistent. Um, and if you believe that your risk assessments are free of fault, then publish. And otherwise you don't get to make the relevance defense. And I think to further challenge that defense, um, as Diana mentions, Drew, is this idea that, you know, particularly the, the US manufacturer, manu- manufacturer involved, you know, the idea is that, that they would use the same assessments, like you said earlier, no matter where that plant was in the world. And to think that the seismic variables in Japan are particularly different, maybe from somewhere like San Francisco or, you know, some of the other vol- volcanic kind of areas in, in Europe is, you know, it, it doesn't hold up. And, you know, he also says that, you know, at the time of the accident, we should remember that Japan had a first class reputation for managing complex engineering infrastructure. And there was actually a Washington Post article after the event that um, after the Fukushima that said, if the competent and technologically brilliant Japanese can't build a completely safe reactor, then who can? And that was kind of in the face of this whole relevance defense, which is where you know, even, you know, I guess that was one occasion of the media really trying to actually go, well, should we be, should we be asking more questions here? I, I, I dare our listeners to find an article written about Japanese approach to safety before Fukushima that is not why can America and Europe not be more like Japan? Why are our trains not as safe? Why are our airplanes not as safe? I dare you to find one that says before the accident, look at how dangerous Japan's regulatory regime is. And I also, David, I don't think we made this really explicit. The type of reactor here, this was not a Japanese reactor. (laughs) This was an American reactor (laughs) of a type that is still in existence in America. You know, yes, there are more recently designed reactors, but it's not like everyone's shut down all the old ones. If it's really that the new ones are safe and the old ones are like really, really dangerous, then why is our regulatory regime not said, oh, look at how dangerous all these old ones are. We need to get rid of them immediately. Why have we not done that before Fukushima, if that's what we really believe? So, Drew, the third uh, defence here is sort of overlaps a little bit with the with the relevance one, but it's really about the, it's called the compliance defence or Downer calls it the compliance defence. And it's more in relation to how the company that operates the plant operates it and more specifically how the the workers who control the plant, you know, how they how they act and behave in terms of what it means for the, for the risk assessment itself. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? So this is like the inverse of the design basis. The design basis says, you know, we've got to design the plant to cope for, with certain external events, and we can't be responsible if the external events are beyond what we're expected to design to. The compliance defense says that when we design a plant, we've got to make reasonable assumptions that people will look after it, and they will manage it appropriately, and they won't stuff up in the managing of it. You know, our risk assessment can't be possibly supposed to... It's basically like our risk assessment can't possibly be supposed to take into account fiddle stuffing up. You know, we, our risk assessment was fine, but no one could have anticipated Phil. And of course, you know, the criticism of this is very similar to the criticism of the design basis, is you're supposed to anticipate Phil, right? You're supposed to anticipate reasonable human behaviour. And if you want to make the argument that there is a lack of compliance, you've got to show that this is more than just normal human behaviour because you're really supposed to take into account normal humans, not superhumans. If Fukushima was an act of deliberate sabotage, then absolutely I think it would be quite reasonable to say this was our safety risk assessment, not our security risk assessment. This wasn't an accident. This was a security failing. And then, of course, you'd have to explain the security failing, but at least safety would be redeemed. But you can't say that, like, these were humans behaving humanly. That's terrible. (laughs) 
you how dare these well-trained well-educated japanese operators behave like normal well-trained well-educated japanese operators instead of like the superhumans we imagine the operators in the us germany and france to be yeah so Drew, this idea that you know human error or the actions of 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 an operator are not a reflection on the quality of a risk assessment is that narrative and i guess how how Downer re-examines this, he said, look, we've heard all this every single time. You know, we've seen the reports after Three Mile Island that pointed to operator error. We've we've seen it after Chernobyl, you know, as human error is the primary cause with, you know, even the plant director and five other operators at Chernobyl being sentenced to long long prison terms. And we get it after, after Fukushima as well. And what Downer says that, you know, even if we feel like we can blame a nuclear accident on errors or misbehavior of people, it doesn't redeem these assessments that claim the accident was not credible, you know, because I guess such such an argument would say that we've got these perfect assessments, we've got perfect control over the risks, we've got a perfect set of rules, and if everyone follows those rules, then our risk assessments are correct. And I guess Drew in here, um, Downer sort of drew on a lot of the stuff that we've covered a few times in the in the podcast here about um, complex systems and performance variability and local rationality. So listeners will be familiar with you know just how different situations are that operators face every day and just how incomplete their information of you know the overall functioning of the system is so if you don't have an error tolerant tolerant system then your risk assessment is really not that good to you yeah like uh, imagine if we made that same argument you driving to work is perfectly safe so long as every other driver always obeys every road rule flying is perfectly safe so long as pilots are never tired yeah, if we if we like assume human perfection, that's just not a rational assumption to make, particularly given that you've got previous evidence of people making these exact same mistakes in previous nuclear power plants. So, Drew, the fourth um, argument here is the redemption defence, and and I guess well, do you want to do you want to talk to that? It's 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 one of the more straightforward ones. So so this is we have learned from Fukushima. So you know, yes, Fukushima was bad. But don't worry, because we learn from our mistakes and we're not going to make those same mistakes again. One thing I don't know if Downer was actually aware of in this paper was there was a whole massive spate of conferences around the world in the subsequent couple of years. Basically, everyone retitled their risk assessment or safety conference, learning from Fukushima or like, how do we like avoid repeating the mistakes of Fukushima? So... I, I think this is a like very sincere defense and all of these are not intended to be cynical. They're all intended to be sincere. And it's like, we okay, so we understand now that Fukushima, the problem was that they didn't properly consider the design basis. Okay, all of our risk assessments now have got rules that we have properly consider our design basis. Um, your Fukushima, they didn't properly consider the fact that the emergency generators might go down at the same time as the power plant. So all risk assessments now have to include a proper assessment of what's the likelihood that the generators will function at the same time as whatever caused it to fall down. So it's like, you know, yes, there was a hole in the dam, but our fingers are there now. Don't worry, there's no leak because we've spotted the leak and we've fixed it. No, so I say, I guess, Drew, in starting talks about, you know, the EU came out and says we're going to reassess all of our nuclear power plants, as did the NRC in the US sort of said, well, we haven't, we don't think that our uh, assessments to date have adequately weighed the risks of, you know, emergency generators or flooding, and we're going to do that. The IEA had a five-point plan to strengthen reactor oversight. But it's like you said, Drew, we've now got, we've we've now had a good look at flooding risk. We've now had a good look at emergency generated, you know, and, you know, generators going down when the plant goes down. And I guess, Drew, it's kind of like, 
two things. One is that Downer says, well, there's actually no clear evidence that that much actually changed as a result of those review processes, particularly for you know established plants. And the second thing is you've corrected you know a couple more things that you know about now, but how does that give you any confidence of the things that you know didn't actually happen at Fukushima that could still be you know systemic weaknesses with your with your risk assessments? David, I want to quote from a bit earlier in the paper, both to illustrate this point and also just as a continuing explanation for why I love this paper. Um, you know, he quotes Terry Pratchett, but he also quote, quotes um, Charles Schultz in Peanuts. Um, we've got an international audience. Maybe not everyone's as big a fan of Snoopy as I am personally, so I'll basically explain. There's this one comic strip that all throughout Peanuts run for decades. This almost exact same comic strip gets published every now and then. And it consists of the main character of Peanuts, Charlie Brown, and his friend Lucy is holding a football ready for him to kick it. Charlie runs up to kick the football. Lucy whips it away. Charlie Brown falls over. And then every subsequent comic, the first panel is Lucy explaining why this time she's not going to take away the football. And every single time she takes away the football. And you know, the lesson we're supposed to get from that is not listen to Lucy's carefully reasoned explanation for why it will be different this time. It's examined the larger lesson. Lucy can't be trusted with these explanations. And that's the trouble with the redemption defense is it works exactly once. You Once it's happened twice, you've got two things to explain now. Not just that you fixed the mistake, but you've got to explain why your fix last time didn't work. And then the next time you've got to explain why your fix the previous time didn't work. And we're now at the point where you have to explain why this time is so different from all of the previous times, because the history has been repeatedly risk assessments fail in all sorts of ways. Fixing up the process doesn't stop. Warning people about the particular mistake doesn't stop it. Building up general competency in risk assessment doesn't stop it. You're patching the holes in something that is constantly full of holes. The lesson that needs to be learned is not how to redeem it, but learn that it's not to be trusted. So, Drew, this is a this is actually a fun paper, and and I'm not sure if it's open access and people can access it, but you know maybe if you give us a hoy, we'll uh, we'll we'll flick it through. But um, like in the in the risk of this being a long episode, you, do you want to say anything before we go into some practical takeaways? The final thing I just want to say is that this paper isn't really about what is wrong with quantitative risk assessments. There's a whole other body of work about that. We've addressed some of it in previous episodes. I'm sure we'll address it in future episodes. What this episode is interesting about is the way in which people are able to rationalise why they keep doing safety in the same way in the face of criticism. And not just in the face of academic criticism, but in the face of the universe is telling you that you're wrong, but you still find reasons to still believing that your safety practices work. And that extends well beyond quantitative risk assessment. It extends to anything we do where we keep repeating the same things even though we keep having safety accidents. And so it's you know, it's a lesson not for quantitative risk assessment of nuclear power. It's a lesson for us all to like really think about our own ways of defending things that we do. Great, Drew. So I had a bit of a go at some practical takeaways. So do you want me to sort of start start us off and see see what you think? Yeah, go for it. So there's this idea that I think you know we've explained today that, that you know uncertainty is significantly present in all risk assessment. You know what have we included in in the basis of design? What have we included as credible scenarios? What have we considered in terms of the actions of people? 
and you know our, our our assessments of likelihood and probability you know what are the assumptions underlying all of those so there's so much uncertain uncertainty in everything that we do in a risk assessment that when you hear someone saying that something is definitively safe i guess the message the the message would be be worried because maybe they actually genuinely believe that it is definitively safe Yep. And I think that applies in the other direction as well, in that when you are being a responsible conveyor of safety information, it is so tempting to want to reassure other people. But the ethical thing to do is to be transparent about the limitations of your own claims and analysis. You know, the right thing to do at Fukushima was to put up the dosimeters in the nearby town and explain to the residents that even though we're doing everything possible, this is also a necessary layer of defense. Not to say, oh, it will worry them if we admit the possibility, so we're not going to do it. So Drew, this redemption defense of found and fix. So, you know, you might find and fix one problem, so in relation to an incident, but that does nothing to correct any systemic weaknesses that you might have with your processes inside your organization. So to think that we've had this problem, we've only had this problem, we've fixed this problem, and we don't need to look any further than that or worry any further than that is a is a mistake. David, I'm going to throw in a quick ad here with your permission for a free product. So nothing that we're getting any money out of. It's a thing called the White Rose Intelligent Customer Handbook that we prepared while I was working at York, which is a free guide to reviewing safety documents. And I'm happy to send that out to any of our listeners who want it totally free to use. And one of the principles in that document is particularly for regulators and customers when you're reviewing things, is don't find mistakes and send those back to the original producer of the document saying, here is the mistake, please fix it. Find a mistake and assume that that is systematic of a category of problems and look for that category being fixed. And that works even as simple as, you know, when you're reviewing someone else's essay, you don't correct every spelling mistake. You correct the first two instances, then you tell them, do a spell check. And you go back next time, you don't check those particular mistakes, you check for the general pattern of spelling. Same thing with risk assessment. Don't fix the particular problems, recognize that they're symptoms of a systematic problem and look for a way to fix the systematic problem. Yeah, great. Drew, we might actually, we might be able to post that publication on LinkedIn or something as well during the course of the week. So the third is that your risk assessments of complex systems, you know, particularly involving people and, and high risk technology, can never identify all potential failure modes, even these really, really detailed quantitative uh, failure modes, effects analysis, and things that that fault trees that um, that Drew's mentioned. So it means that you know our risk assessment process can never be uh, set and forget. You know we've done it at the time that we've designed the plant, and now we don't have to worry for the life of the plant. You know we need to have ways of constantly getting feedback on you know modes of operation, what's happening in industry, and, and, and properly scrutinizing where the world is showing us that our representation of the world in our risk assessments may not be as you know, true as we'd like it to be. Three things that are inevitably missing for every risk assessment of a complex system are anticipating all the mistakes that people will make, anticipating the way the technology will change and evolve over the next few years, and anticipating all of the little plastic connectors that can break causing your complex technology to fail. And no one ever successfully remembers all of those things. And the lesson there is not remember all of those things, it's no one ever successfully remembers them. Yeah, it's interesting. I was speaking to someone who was an engineer involved in a reliability assessment of an LNG facility and sort of said, oh, what, what's the 
failure mode you're worried about and he had said you know the seals on on a particular type of pump of everything that could go wrong in that entire plant it was the pump seals because he was worried after three or six months whether they'd still you know whether they wouldn't start leaking or not and i guess that's like the o-rings in the challenger launch drew of all of the complex technologies it was you know a set of o-rings on rocket boosters in cold temperature and that was enough to you know crash the system literally and the second shuttle was basically the equivalent of styrofoam foam. Yeah. It, it's the little plastic and rubber bits that get you. <laughs> so, Drew, the, the fourth one here is that, you know, there are going to be assumptions, you know, and basis of design for every risk assessment. We've never considered, you know, all of the potential scenarios that, that could be involved, even not all the credible scenarios. And so I guess if you're reviewing or involved in risk assessments, be wary of those and, you know, doing a bit of scenario analysis, asking a few what-if scenarios. So this idea that, oh, the basis of design. It's designed for a 10-metre wave height. Uh, well, what if we get something that's 30 metres? What would happen then? And I was involved in an offshore platform that we were doing some work on manning it, Drew, putting, well, personing it, I guess, putting people offshore. And similar, not too long after Fukushima, actually, and the team had done like a pushover analysis about um, maximum wave height before this thing would push over. And I remember having a really deep conversation at the time in the wake of Fukushima about were they – how how much bigger was the wave height they considered than the biggest wave height ever recorded in that part of the world, you know, in the last hundred years? And the initial starting point was only marginally more. So it's interesting to see different industries can repeat these mistakes. But asking what if, you know, what if there's a there's a 40 meter wave instead of a 25 meter wave? And at least then you'll start to understand where you've got, you know, catastrophic failure potential if something out of the ordinary happens. Yep. Well, one thing I say in all of my system safety classes is that every assumption you make is an obligation. So an assumption isn't something that restricts your analysis. An assumption is something that immediately goes onto your to-do list of things that you need to check and ensure. You, the moment you write down my assumption is that the largest wave is 10 metres, that's an obligation to go out and find good evidence that, in fact, that is right. And if not, replace it with the correct number and redesign accordingly. And then I guess to the to the next point, the next practical takeaway here about your assumptions of uh, of the operators of in these systems, and so being aware of assessments that are not tolerant or dismissive of the variability of operator capability and their understanding of the system and their task performance, and so when you see a risk assessment that is almost technology only and just makes an explicit assumption that operators will be trained, they will understand what to do, and they will act in accordance with the designer's intentions all the time that's unlikely to be a, a very resilient type of system. So, you know, being aware of those assessments that don't at, you know, I guess, I don't know what the ratio should be, but, you know, worrying 50% about the engineering design and worrying 50% about how operators are actually going to work with that design um, once we switch it on. And there are really basic statistical techniques that can guide us here. You know, if you want to make a claim that's as simple as, oh, the operators are going to make this mistake one in a thousand times, then I want to see that you've observed operators do that in realistic conditions 2,000 times. And if it's the sort of thing that, you know, is too dangerous to actually observe operators doing it, then don't make the assumption because you could never validate that that's in fact what's going to happen. Andrew, finally, my last point there was, I guess, in the, in the wake of this sort of incident and this industry is just because something's approved as safe by a regulator doesn't actually make it safe. So I guess in all of these, whether it's aviation or oil and gas or mining or nuclear, you know, all of these incidents that have happened to facilities or or, or 
operations have in some way been endorsed or approved in some way by a regulator, um, but it doesn't make them safe. I'm going to agree with you, David, but I'm not quite sure we do with that as a takeaway, except be scared. Well, well, I guess if I guess I guess we hear that argument as a justification in the industry as well. The safety case has been approved, so people won't necessarily want to enter into any debate about the limitations of that assessment because it's been approved by the regulator. So if that becomes the defence, if if so, if that's the defence that's being used in your organisation that that this has been approved by a regulator, then yeah, maybe that's not a great time to just stop based on that solely. Yeah, I, I think something we need to be honest about as people working with these sorts of systems is that regulators, for reasons that are no fault of the regulator, lack the capacity to provide adequate peer review of design. And we can talk maybe about that in another episode about some of the reasons why that's the case. But that means then that we can't use the fact that the regulator has approved and accept something as evidence of its adequacy, because that's not what regulators are capable of doing. So Drew, the question we asked this week was, when should incidents cause us to question our risk assessments? Oh, David, I love your answer here, which is exactly what I was going to say too, which is we should be questioning risk assessments constantly. Incidents should just be a reminder that this is something we should be doing constantly. All right, so that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join us on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 